Hello. So I'm going to be talking about overview and management of asthma. Uh, just raise your hand if you have any questions or stop me if I'm saying something wrong just because I came off of an overnight shift. So. All right, so basically it's just the meat and potatoes of asthma, okay? So not necessarily the latest and greatest, but um, you know, we'll be talking about the usual management of asthma exacerbations as well as uh, you know, the crashing patient's management. So in terms of background, asthma, it's a chronic inflammatory disease of the airways characterized by reversible airflow uh, obstruction and bronchospasm. Okay. Uh, the other terms that you should know is stas asthmaticus. It is asthma that does not respond to aggressive therapies within 30 to 60 minutes. And then near fatal asthma, which is respiratory arrest or evidence of respiratory failure in which the PCO2 is greater than 50 millimeters mercury. So here is the uh, consensus definition by the American Thoracic Society on severe asthma. So uh, severe asthma is defined as either asthma that meets one of the major characteristics or two minor characteristics listed on this. So in terms of major characteristics is treatment of continuous or near continuous with oral corticosteroids uh, in terms of control of asthma or requirement for treatment with high dose intravenous uh, corticosteroids. And then in terms of minor characteristics, if it fulfills two of them, then it also counts as a person having severe asthma. So if you need daily treatment with the controller medication, uh, if, you have, uh, if you need to use short-acting beta agonists, so albuterol, on a daily or near-daily basis, if you have persistent airway obstruction, if you have one or more urgent care visits for asthma per year, three or more oral steroid bursts per year, uh, prompt deterioration with less than 25% reduction oral intravenous corticosteroid use or near fatal asthma in the past. So these are things to keep in mind because they are pretty relevant in terms of when you ask the history. So it is the most common chronic disease worldwide. Um, 24.6 million people are affected in the U.S., and it is a big financial <coughs> burden, not only with the hospitalization requ uh, you know, required, but also days off from work, including parents not being able to work with their kids having asthma exacerbations. And it is not a completely benign disease. There are people who die of this, even in the U.S. In terms of pathophysiology, uh, this is basically a review for you guys. It's basically, usually it's allergens that causes... Um, bronchospasm, and then uh, and that's the reversible part of asthma. And then there is some component of airway remodeling. Going down to molecular level, this basically is a diagram of how the immune response leading to asthma. And bottom line is that uh, uh, it basically leads to a mass, uh, usually allergens cause a mass cell release of histamines, and then also leads to a process of production of leukotrienes, which leads to the asthma uh, um, response. And as I said before, there's a component of airway remodeling. So even though if this is asthma is technically a reversible disease, what happens is a person who doesn't have asthma that's taken care of, their basement membrane thickens and causes the, um, 
causes basically increased number of these mucus producing cells and so as a result sometimes when you have patients who don't have asthma that's well controlled at home it actually turns out to be pretty difficult to control their asthma in the emergency department. In addition to allergens there are also other causes of asthma. There is also, there's the aspirin induced um, asthma and basically on the right hand screen is a small little diagram in terms of how asthma leads to sorry, how aspirin use leads to um, asthma. And basically, it's aspirin leads to increased production of, sorry, decreased production of prostaglandins, which inhibit the leukotriene uh, production. And so without this inhibition, leukotriene levels rise and leads to the, uh, leads to increased, leads to asthma. There's also exercise-induced asthma, which is, um, Mechanism is not pre is not clear, but you'll see a significant amount of people. Uh, the, surprisingly, there's 30 to 50 percent of elite athletes who have exercise-induced asthma. There's also menstruation-associated asthma. So some of these women they may have asthma exacerbations once a month, and it's due to the basically the fluctuations of estrogen progesterone levels. Usually the fall levels leads to asthma. And then there is psychologically induced asthma, okay? So as you would, you know, <laughs> I know this all puts it all together. I like that you put them on the same slide. So epidemiologically, uh, panic disorder as well as generalized anxiety disorder are more common in asthmatics than the general population. So this is what you would see in textbooks too. There are two distinct presentations of asthma. There's a slow on, which is the more common presentation <coughs> of asthma, and there's also the fast on, which is the less common presentation. Now, the reason why there's that two distinctions is that the slow onset one is associated with more extensive inflammation. And so you're gonna find these patients who have, uh, who have uh, you, you may have some difficulty managing and it may require not only the uh, bronch uh, bronchodilators, but also waiting for the steroids to kick in in order to have the patient have the response. And usually the, um, the trigger for this is upper respiratory infections. The fast one, which is a less common one, is usually the one which is just exclusively allergic, just a quick allergic reaction or exercise-induced or cold-induced, in which you'll usually find them responding to bronchodilators pretty quickly. All right, to keep you guys awake, here's a question. Periodic asthma flares may be precipitated by which of the following? Falling leukotriene levels, increased production of prostaglandin, rising estrogen levels, falling progesterone levels, thyroid hormone fluctuations. It's, uh, anybody else? It's D. So the falling progesterone levels increase the risk of... Uh, uh, may precipitate an asthma flare. So A and B, it's usually the rise of leukotriene levels and decreased production of prostaglandin that lead to asthma flares. So next part is I'm going to talk about the guidelines in terms of management. Most of this comes from the expert panel report three, which is which was published in 2007, and this is the most current report. There isn't any that's more current. And then later we're going to talk about near fatal asthma and look at the American Heart Association guidelines. 
Now, before I go on with talking about emergency management, I just want to give you a background in terms of what our patients may be experiencing in outpatient clinics. So, uh, you know, some people who have a, you know, a primary care doctor, which is pretty rare in our case, um, they would get pulmonary function testing in which they get uh, diagnosed with asthma. So in order to pulmonary function testing, they basically go with this machine and figure out whether they have a signs of obstructive disease and then if it's reversible with, um, with uh, albuterol. Okay, if they cannot get a response with albuterol, they would do what's called a methacholine challenge in which the methacholine uh, may cause the, will cause the bronchospasm if the person has asthma. Now, the most important number for us to know is the uh, peak respiratory flow rate. And that's basically what patients who have primary, uh, who have primary care doctors who have undergone uh, pulmonary function testing should know and what guides them to decide whether or not to, what kind of treatment they need to and whether they need to go to the emergency department. So in the green area, it's if their uh, pulmonary, um, if their peak flow is 80 to 100% of predicted, under those cases, they just need to do their maintenance medication. They don't even need to use their albuterol. Once they're in the yellow zone, um, they, um, they are recommended to use quick relief medications. And if it just worsens, they may need to contact their physician for maybe a steroid burst. In the red zone, it's where their peak uh, predicted flow, uh, so their, predict, their peak flow is less than 50% of predicted, and that's under circumstance where they do all their treatments and they come to the emergency, and they're recommended to come to the emergency department. So usually we have the time to go over lung volumes and capacities just because this is pulmonary month. Um, so, I mean, this is stuff that you'll probably be quizzed on in the intensive care unit. You may see a question or two uh, on. Uh, just like give me questions on the uh, board review uh, stuff. So, um, so basically, it's you know for the lung volumes is broken down into four different components. So inspiratory reserve volume, <coughs> tidal volume, expiratory reserve volume, and the reserve volume. And basically, with the combination of the other things, you get the inspiratory capacity, uh, functional residual capacity, total lung capacity is the sum of all of it, and then vital capacity is basically. Uh, what we try to measure with the peak flow. So uh, when you see a patient arriving in the emergency department, usually you hear about patients saying that I have wheezing. Okay. However, one of the things that you should also note is sometimes they may not be complaining of wheezing and they're only complaining of some coughing and some shortness of breath. In terms of history, make sure to ask about all these things. So what, uh, you know, when did this happen? How did it happen? What are your usual triggers? What are usual things that make it worse? And you can ask them how, to how they compare their exacerbations from previous ones. And in addition, ask about their you know, comorbidities um, because definitely uh, you know, if they have diabetes, the steroids that you're going to give them is going to affect uh, their labs so, so that they will know that they need to expect this. Okay, and the other thing that you should ask about is what they use for treatment, and you know what kind of. And in terms of albuterol, sometimes these people, a lot of them who come here, they like the last time they received their albuterol uh, was just an albuterol canister two years ago, where you prescribed to them in the ER. So make sure to say how old is your canister, and then also ask if they use something like a spacer, because a lot of people use their inhaler incorrectly, and sometimes with the spacer would help a lot in terms of administration. 
So these are, this is a table which talks about risk factors for death and asthma. And basically some of it we sort of covered in terms of what's defined as severe asthma. And so with this list, these are things that you should keep in mind in terms of asking a history. I mean, these are things that we as attendings will probably ask you guys, like, has a person been hospitalized or has a person been intubated for asthma? Um, or this person is a person who usually comes very late. He doesn't really you know, detect whether or not he has asthma, but comes in because he has just difficulty breathing. In terms of social history, uh, things that put uh, people at increased risk of death from asthma is low socioeconomic <coughs> status, if they have serious psychosocial problems, and then if they use illicit drugs, especially inhaled cocaine and heroin, uh, and then also if they have any comorbidities. <coughs> so take a quick look at this list, and it will help you answer the next slide's question. All right, ready? Okay, which of the following is a risk factor for sudden death of asthma? ED visit for the past year, but not within the last 30 days. Current use of systemic corticosteroids. Hospitalization for asthma in the past year, but not in the last 30 days. Patient perception that the current exacerbation is severe. Or use of over-the-counter medications. Yeah, that's correct. So A and C are not correct just because being in the hospital for the last 30 days or in the emergency department for the last 30 days does is a risk factor for sudden death. And then D and E are pretty much self-explanatory. So physical exam, here are a few things that you should look for that kind of will trigger your mind like this is a probably a pretty severe exacerbation. So if they're trying to sit upright, if they're having this sort of tripoding kind of position, if they're tachycardic greater than 120, if they're tachypnic, okay, and then something that we don't usually measure anymore basically because once uh, we've had uh, these, you know, being able to measure peak flows, we've rarely used pulses paradoxes, but if you ever tried it, if it's greater than 10 millimeter, Mercury of pulses paradoxes, um, you'd be concerned with severe exacerbation. The main thing is, I mean, this is something that I find myself at fault in terms of not doing enough, uh, but this is a really good way for you to determine the patient's disposition is to actually get the peak flow. And by using the peak flow, you'll be able to monitor the patient's progress and you'll be able, it's kind of easier for you to decide where this patient's going to go after treatment. Here I show a graph in terms of how a blood gas would look in an asthmatic. And basically, the bottom line is that you shouldn't be commonly using ABGs for asthmatics. Okay? And the reason being, as you can see, is this is a normal ABG. And so for a person who's really not having an asthma exacerbation, it would look this way. But you'll take a look, when the person starts having exacerbation, they'll be hyperventilating, thus blowing off their CO2. Um, and as you go down here, you'll basically see right here, at this stage where the person is worsening, the ABG is gonna look almost identical as a person who's not having an exacerbation at all. So it's not gonna really help you, um, help you really determine which way you're going with the treatment. And even if you get a normal blood gas, 
you might be lulled into this false sense of being comfortable just because it's a normal looking ABG while this person is actually crumping. Other blood testing, really not much is useful. If you're concerned whether this is a cardiac wheeze instead of an asthma exacerbation at a BNP level, if they're taking theophylline, which is rarely used right now, get a theophylline level, make sure it's not, there's not any toxicity. Chest x-ray is not usually recommended. It's not unless if a person has lots of comorbidities. If you're having other symptoms, like a person saying that they have a fever, or if you're doing the regular treatment and the patient is not looking the way that you'd expect it to for a regular asthma exacerbation, I'd recommend you to get a chest x-ray. EKG is not commonly recommended. It's unless if a person's like has a history of heart disease that you're concerned and the person's tachycardic, make sure you know they're not in some kind of arrhythmia. But from a perspective of treatment of asthma, EKG isn't usually recommended. Here's a whole big list of a differential diagnosis that you should think about. Now let's go on with amp management. So with um, with management of asthma, it's ABCs or CABs. Um, and first thing you give is oxygen. And then let me just talk about, this is not all the treatments. There are treatments uh, I'll be talking in the next three slides, so you don't see all of them here. But basically, I've categorized them. So uh, one of the mainstays of an asthma exacerbation in the emergency department is using a short-acting inhaled beta-2 agonist. So most commonly used albuterol. Uh, the other kind you can use is Zopinex, also known as levalbuterol. Um, in terms of studies, studies have not really panned out in terms of benefit of levalbuterol over albuterol. But if you do have a patient who says, I get a very bad reaction, my heart rate just goes crazy because when I use albuterol, I prefer uh, levalbuterol, um, you know, it's perfectly fine to use the medication. And actually, in terms of outpatient medication, um, if you need to give a meter dose inhaler, the cost between using albuterol and uh, levalbuterol is actually not that much different. Now that the generic albuterols have been off the market just because now with the being more environmentally friendly CFC free uh, inhalers, it's basically been the name brand uh, albuterol inhalers that you can, uh, the only ones that you can prescribe. So basically the price is pretty much the same, maybe a little more, more expensive with levalbuterol. Um, so you have the option of using nebulizer versus meter dose inhaler. Um, usually we use the nebulizer just because we don't have to care whether or not the patient is breathing right because as long as there's some vapor and they're doing regular breathing, they're going to get the, um, uh, get the medication into their lungs. But if it's someone who doesn't really have <coughs> much of an asthma exacerbation, uh, I mean, it's really not that severe, it may be worth your while instead of using nebulizer treatment to give a meter dose inhaler and give it with the spacer so that <coughs> they can basically see that they can you, you can see if they're using it correctly in the emergency department, and if they feel relief, they, they, um, you know, they're more reassured that they can handle this at home with just a meter dose inhaler. Um, other treatments that you can use if, those, if the albuterol or levalbuterol isn't working is using nebulized epinephrine. So um, this is something that I saw in... Uh, uh, CSI and EM rep that you can actually use. So you can use either you know the racemic epinephrine that we would use for other respiratory illnesses, or an alternative is if you use the the epinephrine that you use for sub Q and just use five millimeters of it and um, 
nebulize, and that can be an alternative way to treat it if you can't get the racemic epinephrine fast enough. Um, in terms of other, uh, other things that you can use, you can use I, uh, IV form. And so um, an easy way is to use uh, epinephrine, and you can basically inject um, one milligram of epinephrine of one to 10,000 in a one liter bag and start with the one microgram a minute and titrate up. The other thing that you may encounter if you're in another nation is to use, uh, use IV albuterol. The other thing you can do is if the person doesn't have IV access, but you're really desperate and the nebulized treatments aren't working, is to use Basically, do what you do for an anaphylactic reaction, give sub-Q epinephrine. And the other thing you can use is to use terbutaline. So just a, a lot of, I don't know what they were teaching today, if this myth has per, perpetuated itself, but there was this sense that you couldn't use uh, sub-Q epinephrine in uh, older people who were 50 or 60. And while there are probably some theoretical risks, practically, uh, uh, this has not really worn itself out. I mean, obviously somebody who's like this MI guy with a, that we saw earlier yeah. today with an injection fracture of 20% who's having acute ischemic heart pain in front of you, that's a different story. But a lot of these asthmatics who are 50 to 60 years old and beyond can tolerate subcute epinephrine if you don't have the tribunal or anything else on board. So there, there's no absolute contraindication to doing that. Uh, and that should be in the back of your mind because some of these people have sick for a very long period of time. IV access is really a pain. You're not really wild about throwing a uh, yeah. osseous line in just to give them some meds. Mm -hmm. So it's something to think about. That, and certainly sub-Q epinephrine is not contraindicated. So uh, as Dr. Schultz mentions, uh, just for people who are listening to your recording, su uh, sub-Q epinephrine is not contraindicated for patients, uh, even if they may have some heart disease, as long as uh, uh, because it's pretty low risk. And that brings up another issue is, you know, sometimes nurses come up to you and just say, we've been giving albuterol and the heart rate's very fast and this is an older patient and they're concerned that it's going to go faster. Sometimes you'll be surprised that the, there will be a paradoxical <laughs> reaction as a person gets relief with their breathing, their heart rate is actually going to go down. Okay, so don't be, don't be pushed to decide not to give albuterol just because the patient is already really tachycardic. You're really working hard to breathe and you're pulling a negative interthoracic pressure. It's like taking your heart and placing it on the floor and making the heart pump blood from the floor all the way to the thoracic outlet to get the blood out. And as you decrease the interthoracic pressure with breathing, which these drugs do do, it actually decreases the work of the heart and therefore the heart rate may actually come down. So in terms of corticosteroids, um, so the bioavailability of steroids is the same as PO as an IV. So basically, if you can get the patient to swallow medication, PO medication is preferred. Okay? Um, and if you manage to discharge the patient, usually you can give 40 to 60 milligrams for 5 to 10 days uh, as a steroid burst. And then for patients who you don't think they're going to take their steroids, you may this is pretty rare. I actually have not done it myself, but some recommendations say you can consider giving a depot dose of trinacillin diacetate or methylprednisolone prior to discharge, and that can last through for a few days to help manage the asthma exacerbation. Uh, you come in, you guys are probably familiar with using Atrovent. Uh, um, Atrovent should not be used alone, but then it's a very good adjunct with albuterol in terms of managing the, um, 
imagining an asthma exacerbation. And the reason why it shouldn't be given alone is just because it has lower potency and slower onset than albuterol. Magnesium sulfate should be also something that's uh, considered. And it is, in a study, it's recommended to be given for severe attacks. So you can give two to three grams for adults over 20 minutes. So these are other things that are mentioned in terms of treatment of asthma. So I put down leukotriene modifiers. Uh, basically, just remember that these are medications that are used for commonly for chronic asthma. And so they shouldn't be used for acute exacerbations. And if a patient tells you that they're using one of these drugs because they just start having an asthma attack, you should basically educate them and tell them this is a chronic control medication. It's not, shouldn't be part, should be something that you take you know, every day on a regular basis, but not for an acute exacerbation. And the heliox is also something that's been mentioned in terms of treatment of asthma. And basically, there hasn't been really much evidence that's panned out in terms of benefits of it. However, uh, in the uh, uh, recommendations, uh, basically, it's something that you may consider for life-threatening exacerbations if you've had the exacerbation last for one hour and you've done everything else and it's not helping. So going on for beyond what we typically see for asthma exacerbations, if a person is not doing quite so well, there are other things you can consider. So we've already mentioned about steroids, magnesium, terbutaline, but one thing you can consider is doing uh, BiPAP, so uh, positive pressure ventilation. And having the um, albuterol and the atrovent go through in line. And that actually has been found to have lots of benefit uh, in terms of asthma exacerbations. And just remember that for using BiPAP, you should make sure that the person is normal mental status, is able to control their secretions uh, so that you don't end up um, having a patient who's like unconscious, vomits in the mask, and aspirates. Going on with intubation, so uh, these are some medications that you should think about using for intubation. So lidocaine can be in, uh, considered to prevent bronchospasm from instrumentation. Uh, and then in terms of medications for induction, the recommended agent is ketamine. And I wrote down the dosage for you guys for uh, reference. And then for uh, paralysis, you can use either succinylcholine or rocuronium. And then Maintenance medications, once you have the patient intubated, you can use intermittent boluses of half to one milligram per kilogram doses of uh, ketamine or do propofol. Now, if those things aren't working, you may give your a call to the anesthesiologist. And one of the things that uh, their inhaled anesthetics helps is bronchospasm. So isoflurane is actually an agent that they use for, uh, for induction, and it's something that... Uh, if these other things aren't working and they're intubated, you may ask the anesthesiologist to take them to OR so that they can get inhaled um, isoflurane. Is there a contraindication using like uh, benzos, or is it just those would be preferred for the bronchospasm? Uh, these are preferred for the bronchospasm. I mean, the benzos are mainly just for the anxiety related, and if you're really thinking they're so anxious, no, then I mean, for the once they're intubated, other than the typical, you know, like. Oh, you mean, yeah, Versed? I mean, that's perfectly fine. It's just that if you have, if you, you know, if you intubate somebody for, uh, for an asthma exacerbation to help along, I mean, it, it's much help, more helpful to use ketamine. Now, in terms of ventilator strategies, so they have pretty much a different physiology than other people that you would intubate. So basically, have them have, uh, 
do permissive hypercapnia. Their goal pH needs, uh, should be around 7.15 to 7.2. Make sure you use low tidal volumes and a low rate just because they have a really prolonged excretory phase. And in terms of guidelines, in terms of uh, where you sh doing blood gases once they're intubated, uh, where to go to based on settings, you should, um, you know, the preferred PaCO2 is around 80, but uh, as long as it's below 100 millimeters, you should be perfectly fine. And so those are the settings that you should think about when you're doing, uh, um, when you're managing an asthma, uh, asthmatic on a ventilator. Now, if the person is trapping air, uh, you should consider doing like a bear hug on them or a chest compression. Uh, if you feel that, you know, if you're doing something and they're having high pressures and they're having low uh, blood pressure that, you know, they're not having enough blood returned back into your intrathoracic cavity, this is something that you may consider doing. So disconnect the ventilator and then basically do a bear hug on them to squeeze out all the air that they had. They are prone to breath stacking just because they have such a prolonged expiratory phase that under normal settings, you may have a person basically not completely breathe out and you just completely fill them up with air in the chest cavity. Now, if the person goes into uh, a cardiac arrest, cardiopulmonary arrest, you should consider doing that. And then you should basically empirically assume that they have pneumothoraces put in two chest tubes, and then as a crash measure, if you haven't given epinephrine, give them epinephrine. And then this is something that you know is often in certain centers, but some people who have really bad asthma can go on to ECMO. And this is actually the guy who invented ECMO. This is Dr. Bartlett. I actually did research with him for a short while while I was at Michigan. So. He invented it, yeah. So treatments not recommended. So these are, you know, the methylxanthines are prone to toxicity. They have a pretty narrow therapeutic window, so they're not recommended. And then antibiotics aren't usually recommended, unless if you have evidence of infection. Um, and then the other thing is sometimes I know some of us say we should hydrate the patient, unless if the patient has actual signs of dehydration, just the mere fact of they're having an asthma exacerbation, don't. Uh, don't necessarily aggressively hydrate them. Um, these are other um, chest physiotherapy, mucolytics, sedation. These are things that are not commonly recommended. Definitely use your judgment if the person you think has psychologically induced asthma is just very anxious. You can definitely use some Ativan if you want to. So, there, so, you, so many of you have rotated through the PICU and you probably have seen folks being on theophylline and mm -hmm. I can quite honestly tell you that is not recommended whatsoever. Numerous trials have shown that it causes seizures and is not as efficacious as some of the other medications. I know that some of the attendings there are staunch advocates for theophylline. Just so you know, it is crap. It doesn't <laughs> work and you're doing more harm than good. Sometimes you're kind of cornered into giving it, and I, I just want you to be aware. Even the AAP, the pediatricians themselves, do not recommend it. We used to joke about this stuff. We used to say, first they wheeze, then they seize. <laughs> 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 
we did this all the time to people, and uh, you know, I I wondered even as a resident, is this really doing any good? Because it seemed like we were just like punishing them. <laughs> just as we got the Theophilum therapeutic, you know, they look like trash, but hey, look, the drug level's perfect. So I, I think uh, Dr. Chakabarthi is correct. Um, and don't even take our word for it. Do literature searches. This stuff has been looked at so many times. Nobody can show any outcome that you would care about if it gets any better than this stuff. And I mean, you you. You may still see it, it done in foreign countries, though. Yeah. So in terms of disposition, if the uh, one as I mentioned a few slides before, peak flow is very helpful. So. Uh, especially with patients who are poor perceivers who can't really detect how bad their asthma is, having a peak flow gives you an objective measure in terms of deciding what the patient, um, uh, where the patient's going. So if the patient's peak flow is greater than 70% of their predicted, this is a good way to know whether or not they're good enough to be discharged. Other things that I said, make sure that they're using the inhaler properly uh, and recommend that a spacer is used. Um, and for those of you not familiar with the spacer, it's one of these plastic canisters that you plug in with the inhaler. And, uh, in or and what, why it's useful is just because when you give that puff of medication, it stays in that chamber. And the chamber ensures that you're, giving, you're doing a slow, big breath when you're getting in the medication. It actually has some kind of whistle that, that you hear a sound if you're breathing in too fast. Um, and then, you, uh, and then for an exacerbation, give them corticosteroids for five to 10 days. They don't necessarily need to follow up with their primary care doctor in three to five days, but make sure that in the next three to five days that they contact their primary care doctor and, uh, for follow-up in one to five weeks. And then if anybody smokes themselves or family, recommend that they stop smoking. If a patient has Basically, their peak flow between 40 and below uh, 70%. This is somewhere where they're kind of iffy. If there's an observation unit, you can consider admitting them into the observation unit and see how they do, or actually admitting them if you don't have an observation unit. Uh, if it's less than 40%, definitely admit the patient. And then if the patient has really severe asthma, either it's less than 25% of peak flow or they don't improve greater than 10% after treatment, this is uh, a circumstance where you would consider um, putting them in intensive care unit. All right, so here are a few review questions for you guys, two of them. A 23-year-old male with known severe asthma presents with an acute asthma flare over two hours. Physical exam shows somebody who's tachycardic, slightly uh, hypoxic, tachypnic, takes albuterol, inhaler and fluticasone and what following therapies are recommended for his acute flare? D. Good. So D. Any questions about that? Alright, so what is a set of relaxing combination of choice for RSI and of an asthmatic? D. D. Alright, cool. Any other questions? Yeah. If they don't know their normal peak flow, mm -hmm. you're trying to get a percentage of peak flow and that kind of thing, is there a you know, uh, number that you look at 
as far as like you know if they can blow two hundred, is that like good enough versus? Um, usually you can. Um, I don't know the exact numbers, but one thing you can look up, yeah, you can predict it by height and weight. So you can look it up on Google, and there's actually a calculator where you look on, actually there's like a graph you can look at based on height and weight where they should be predicted for. And I think also includes age, and that, that it, will, um, it will let you know what their predicted peak flow should be. But yeah, the, but looking up those uh, those numbers can give you a kind of guideline. Like even if it's below two hundred, you're like, okay, I'm starting at twenty five percent and looking to make the goal of seventy percent decide to decide whether the patient can be discharged.